This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. What is... Advent, and as is often our custom, we are beginning a new sermon series this Sunday morning for the season of Advent, and so would you open your Bibles to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9 is where we're going to be. Isaiah is one of the prophets in the Old Testament. There's a pretty good chance if you are looking for the book of Isaiah, you want to open your Bible about halfway through. It'll probably be just to the right of halfway through your Bible. You know, we we do an Advent series because Christians for centuries have recognized that there are rhythms to life and there are rhythms to worship that have proven helpful to those who have preceded us in our faith and on to glory in heaven and so we when we celebrate Advent we kind of tap into a historic Christian practice It's a season of reflection. It's a season season of of anticipation and longing. It's what we're doing for the next month together is we're reflecting on the first coming of Jesus the Messiah, and we are anticipating, we're longing for his second coming. This isn't just a season to look back. It's It's a season also to look forward. And what, what, much of what has traditionally been done around Advent, though, focuses on the past. So think of, you know, Mary and the manger and the baby Jesus. Think about a lot of the songs that we sing. A lot of them look to the past. But like I just said, Advent is a season also for looking to the future. So this year, my hope with our Advent series is to give us a slightly different focus. A few months ago, when I was beginning to give some attention and and some thought to what will we do during Advent, I was reading in my Bible and I came across Hebrews 7.25. That says, consequently, he, meaning Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And that phrase, he always lives, kind of captured me. Started thinking about what Jesus is doing right now. If he always lives, of course that means he's alive now. So what is he doing? Well, according to Hebrews 7.25, he's making intercession for us. He never stops interceding. Intercession is, is, is a very personal plea that Jesus makes for every Christian. Part of the love that Jesus keeps, not just had once, but keeps for you if you're in Christ, is that he constantly presents himself to God the Father as the one who has sacrificed himself so that you could live. And so Jesus is constantly going before the throne of grace, going before God the Father and saying, I have died so that he, so that she might live. And it's very true that, that, that in his death and, and at the cross, Jesus did enough to justify you. 
But think of intercession like this. Think that Jesus didn't just love you at some point in the past and say, okay, I've loved him, I've loved her, I did that for them. Think of intercession as Jesus saying, I still love them, they are still on my mind, I still want to be all for them, I still want to do and act out my love and my grace for them. And so, Jesus continues, he lives, he always lives to make intercession. He's not saying a while ago, I loved you, and then I've moved on to other things. He's saying, I still love you, possibly now more than ever, which we'll get to. So he intercedes for us because he's just as committed to you as he's always been. So I started thinking about Jesus' intercession, and then from there I asked, well, what what else is Jesus doing now? How How can our church Take a look during the Christmas season, not just at something that happened a long time ago, but as at Christmas as an ongoing source of hope. So we're, we're calling this Advent series, Christmas Never Stops. What happened at Christmas happens forever and ever and ever. So, so right now, we're on the fun side of Christmas. If you're doing it right, the tree just went up. I am a very staunch after-Thanksgiving tree guy, but that doesn't mean that I don't get up early the day after Thanksgiving and begin hauling those bins up from the basement. If you drive around the neighborhood, as we did last night, just for a few minutes, The lights are starting to pop up. We are on the fun side of Christmas. Hopefully we're at the point where we can even start gathering together again for a few parties. But but here's what we know about the Christmas season. About a month from now, a few days more than that, maybe a couple weeks more than that, we have to go back into the basement, get the tubs, and put everything away. And there's a little letdown after the holidays, isn't there? Just kind of a little bit of it's over. But we're going to focus on for this month is the the letdown that we feel. That's just because the decorations go away and and we don't get together for parties and stuff like that. But the true meaning of Christmas, what we're really celebrating lasts forever. So when the letdown comes, it's just the small things. It's just the seasonal items. What we celebrate is that, that Christmas, what God did at Christmas never stops. We're actually going to talk about intercession next week. This week, we're talking about the never-ending reign of Christ. What is Christ doing right now? He's reigning as king. And for that, we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 9. So Isaiah chapter 9, starting at verse 1. And we're going to read 1 through 7. So follow along in your Bible, starting there. Isaiah 9. But there will be no gloom for her... Who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun in the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, 
as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So this is a 2,700 year old prophecy. But it's about something that hasn't yet fully been realized. We read in the Gospels, throughout the rest of the New Testament, is it was Jesus who came to fulfill these ancient words. After his ministry on earth was finished, it says of Jesus in, in 1 Peter 3.22, that now Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. That's a kingly reign. He's in heaven with all things subjected to him. The beginning of the book of Hebrews says that after making purification for sins, Jesus ascended to heaven and sat down on the throne at the right hand of God. In the book of Revelation, John sees a picture of that and we have that recorded for us. So right now, Jesus is reigning as the king over all that is created. And these ancient words not only promise that he will one day and is reigning, but they tell us what kind of a king he is. He's not a king like the kings of the world. He's not a king like kings who have been on the earth. He's a new kind of king. He's a better kind of king. So I want to look at three things that these words tell us about his kingship. First, it says that he's a mighty king. Second, it says that he's a gracious king. And third, it says that he is a zealous king. A mighty king, a gracious king, and a zealous king. So let's start with a mighty king. Uh, Isaiah lived 700 years, more than 700 years, before Jesus was born. He was first called by God to speak, to prophecy, to ministry. What he says in Isaiah 6 is, in the year King Uzziah died, that's somewhere around 740 BC. By the time Isaiah is born, Israel, which was, was once a, a great nation, rich, the envy of other surrounding nations is far from its glory days. If you've read any of the Bible, any of those stories, you know the names of King David and King Solomon. Great kings, rich kings, powerful kings. Israel's not like that anymore. The people after Solomon 
begin to forget what it was like to trust in God. And they begin to wander off into spiritual and even physical idolatry. They change their worship habits and practices. They align themselves with worldly nations and they seek worldly comforts and power. Because it's exactly what God promised would happen if they did that, they begin to become threatened by other neighboring nations. At this point in in world history, most of the threats from Israel come from the north and from the east. So when it talks about the land beyond the Jordan, that's what Isaiah is referring to. He's talking about the northern region of Israel. It's, It's known as Galilee. And when neighboring nations, because mostly they come from the north, they come from the east, when they invade Israel, the first region to be overrun, the first region to be subjugated is Galilee. It's called Galilee of the Nations. It's everybody's because everybody comes in through Galilee, invading armies first encounter Galilee. But now what Isaiah is saying is, is from this poor region, historically with little power, historically it changes hands. This is where true power, a new king, a new government will come. So look down at Isaiah 9, 1 to 3. We just read this. But look down there as I read Matthew 4, starting at verse 12. This is Matthew 4. You look at verse Isaiah 9. Now when he heard, this is Jesus, that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles... And from that time and from that place, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So it was from this poor, historically overrun area that the king and the kingship of Jesus begins. Now, the next verses in in Isaiah say that the people who were in darkness have now begun to see light. And those who were burdened and oppressed have now begun to know freedom. But what Isaiah says is, is this hasn't come because Galilee learned how to fight. It didn't happen because all of a sudden the people realized they just lacked strength. And so they began to rise up themselves. Isaiah says it's going to happen. And what Jesus did this is happening because of the power of God. So if you look down again at Isaiah, you will see this, this you. You have multiplied the nation and you have increased its joy. That you, that's the Lord. It's the same thing for the rod of his oppressor. You have broken on the day of Midian. God is doing these things. The, the day of Midian, that's a, that's a reference to a victory that God gave a man named Gideon against huge odds. In the book of Judges. 
So it's talking about there will be one who against all odds, who will seem weak in the world, he will have the victory, not by his kind of worldly strength, but by a strength that only God can provide. And all of this is, is building to a kind of king who's unlike anything that the world has ever seen. He's not just set to rule. He will have such a reign that all he will bring conflict to an end because he will rule in absolute justice. He will bring total peace. Verse 5 says that under his reign, soldiers won't need their uniforms anymore. They can take their equipment for battle, put it away, or burn it, because they will have no use for it because there will be no more battles to fight, no more wars to wage. Under this king who will bring absolute peace. But here's this big twist. Verse 6. So there will be this mighty king. But then it says, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. So God says to everything that has ever kept people in darkness where people have been oppressed, where people have felt like the world, maybe even their, their very lives are at war against them, where there are people who've been overwhelmed and burdened, where people are being held and weighed down. His gift is a child. But no ordinary child. He will be called, uh, among many other things, mighty God. And he will bring freedom and peace. This child Messiah, the promised one, who will be God in the flesh. It says that he is mighty. And he's mighty for you. Jesus is a global gift, but he's also a deeply personal one. He is a mighty God but he's one that you can go to. Uh, I, I think I speak for everybody in the room, kind of try to think through our church about this. And, and I think this is probably, it's probably safe to say that this is a group of people who doesn't have a lot of power in the world. I, I don't know of anybody in our church who has the ear of, of anybody in, in great power. I don't think anybody in our church has an abundance of worldly resources that could just kind of muster any, any outcome that they want. I don't think anybody's owed a favor by somebody who, who really, really is powerful. So I don't think this is a group that's particularly mighty in the eyes of the world. But as Christians, Christ ones, we have intimate access to the mighty king and he invites us to come and welcomes us as often as we want. Just think about that. Jesus doesn't offer you once a week access and said, better make it good and you better make it fast because I've got a lot to deal with. As often as you want to come, he welcomes you. He says, where you feel overpowered, come to me. He has all the power. 
When you are downtrodden, seek him out. He will give you strength to keep walking. Maybe this is the best one. Where you know you have absolutely no control. When you get to the point in your life when you just finally are able to see, you have no control. You can go to him because he's fully in command. The government is on his shoulders. Not the government of the United States of America. Not the United Nations. He commands all stars. Microorganisms. And all the events of the world. So that's the first aspect of his kingship. He is a mighty king. And he's for you. Second, Jesus is a gracious king. So this is a really famous section of Isaiah. You hear it in music a lot during this time of year. But it's immediately set up. It it sounds really great in, in songs. But you have to really see what comes before it to get the full weight of, of what the prophet is saying. So kings and prophets were two different offices in the Old Testament. And here's generally kind of how they worked. Prophets spoke the word of God, heard from God and spoke. And the kings were supposed to lead the people in faith and toward godliness. Now that rarely happened. During the the earlier part of Isaiah's ministry, Ahaz was the king. He was the king of the, of the southern, the, the kingdoms of God. The kingdom of God had split. Israel had split. And the southern kingdom was called Judah. Ahaz was king of Judah. And in an attempt to be kind of clever and manipulate the global sort of international scene, Ahaz made a, a deal with the largest nation in this part of the world at this time, Assyria. The problem was Isaiah was given a vision and, and, and God said, the deal that Ahaz has made with Assyria is going to anger the Assyrians, and it's actually going to lead to the Assyrians invading Judah. So Isaiah goes and he tries to warn Ahaz. He says, don't do this. Don't do this deal. Trust God. Believe in him. Renounce this idolatry. Don't worry about worldly power. God will fight for us. God will protect us. But Ahaz doesn't listen. And so God begins to remove his light from Judah. They have wandered after false gods. They even begin to change their worship practices. Ahaz has the, the temple changed, kind of modified into, a, into a, a, an idol factory to look more like pagan worship of other nations. Really wicked stuff. And at the end of chapter 8, just look at the la- very last verse of chapter 8, 22. This gives you a good idea of, of what's happening. It says, and they will look to the earth... But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. It's so dark at the beginning of chapter 9. And it was. But in chapter 9, we see that God is beginning to do something new. We see that light will dawn on the darkness. That's the grace of God. Isaiah means the grace of God has not been removed from Israel. There's a remnant there. So look, look again at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep or thick darkness, 
on them light has shown. There's another great thing that's entirely the work of God. Left on our own, people will fumble around in darkness. But when God shines in light, that's the only way people are going to be able to once again see. And here's the truth. It's absolutely true that God has every right to leave us in darkness. He just say, you want darkness? You want what the world has to offer? Take it. Take what you want. Like Ahaz and, and the people of, of that time, it's easy for us to make alliances with the powers of the world. We can ask, well, where's my help and my safety going to come from? Maybe we're not going to make an alliance with another nation, but we might just answer, well, my safety is in my job. My safety is in my, my family. It really matters to me what other people think of me. We go on and on and on with that. We do that. And when we do, we're just fumbling around in the dark. But God's gracious to give light. And so we can see only by God's light. Because that's what people tend to do. Is say, where's my, where's my safety going to come from? They look around for things in the world. But God gives light so that we can know we're in darkness and begin to see the right way forward. So part of my undergraduate degree was a major in theater. During my senior year, I was, I was a member of a six-person group that read and performed Shakespeare together. And, and while we were doing, I was doing a scene from, from King Lear, I played a blind man who had to be led around by one of the other characters. And one of the ironies of that play, Shakespeare does this a lot. He plays with blindness as uh, both a metaphorical and a physical image. Metaphorically, it's people who don't understand the world around them, being manipulated by the other characters in the play. They're, they're, they're blind to the things that are happening around them, or they are physically blind. So even though my character was being led around, one of the great ironies of that play is the character is being led around by somebody who wasn't actually any help to him while physically able to see all the characters. Uh, read King Lear. All the characters are metaphorically blind. Nobody in that play really gets what's happening. And the same thing will happen to us if we take our cues from the world. If we let other people who are also in darkness, they might be able to physically see, but they're really blinded to what's actually happening. If we are led in the same way that they're led, if we take our cues as to what is important, what our priorities should be, what we should prize from other people in the world, from other things that matter in the world, all we will really be doing is continually walking around in the dark with other people who can't see any better than we can. But on the other hand, when we let Christ lead, he's gracious to not only give us sight, but he lights the way as well. And the way we do that is by leaning into grace. Grabbing hold of the grace of God is often going to mean letting go of some of the other things that we're holding on to. You won't be able to cling tightly to the things that, that people love while they're in the dark 
while you're also trying to pick up new things in the light. Think about it just like carrying a bunch of stuff in from the car. If you try to carry too much, it's all just going to fall down. If you want to pick up new things in the light, you're going to have to put some of those things gone. And God will show you how to do that. But you have to trust him and you have to be willing to follow him. And when we begin to step into light, when we begin to live in light, it's going to at first feel like less control. And we're going to understand less. But that that only lasts until we can acknowledge that you've always had, I've always had far less control over my life than than I would want to admit. And, And despite everything that you know, you're far better off putting your life into the hands of the one who created you and knows everything for you, knows what's far better for you than even you know to want for yourself. And so it might first feel, when you you begin to walk in the grace of God, to to live and to walk in light, it might first feel like you're giving up too much. But once you know the grace of God, you'll see how freeing it is to live in it. And you wonder how you ever lived before, and then you realize, "I, I wasn't really living before. I was held in bondage. I was in darkness. I just didn't realize it. I was blind. Thought I could see. Now I realize I couldn't. Jesus says he came to give the blind sight. He did it sometimes with physically blind, but just like Shakespeare does. Scripture's constantly using darkness and light and sight and blindness as metaphors for what it means to truly understand life and live in the world. And it all comes by the grace of God. That's what light coming into darkness is, the grace of God. So Jesus is a gracious king. Third, Jesus is a zealous king. Look at how all this happens. One last time, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, all of it. So zeal is a word that, that, that can mean jealousy or love or another word. We don't use it a lot as ardor. It's, it's got an intensity to it. So when we talk about God being jealous, we're not using jealous to mean jealous like humans get jealous. We get jealous when we want what we're not supposed to have. With God, jealousy and love can be much closer together. Think of it like this. God loves so intensely And so perfectly, because he created us, he knows what's best for us. And when he sees us pointing our passions in unhelpful directions, wrong directions, and looking somewhere else for fulfillment, he knows it's not right. And so he's jealous. It's not that his feelings have been hurt. It's that he sees us hurting ourselves and that grieves him. And so he wants passionately, he wants intensely for us to look at him, to look to him because he knows there's nowhere else better for us. In fact, everywhere else will harm us. Have you ever watched a child 
just a young person in general, choose what's harmful or destructive over what's healthy and good and right? Have you ever been on the other end where you love somebody, but you just watch them choose what will hurt them? You know it'll hurt them. You can see it hurting them. That's what it's like for God. When people are walking in darkness, bumping into things, thinking they're chasing after the right things, but ultimately what they're chasing after will harm them. Having a child consistently doing what is destructive, that's really difficult for parents. But it's not just because, you know, they, they want their son or daughter to stay home on Friday night and never leave the house. It's not because they're lonely. It's not because they want just the attention for themselves of the child. It's because they know that whatever else they're choosing, whatever else they're likely to choose, it's going to be harmful for them. It's going to be wrong. It's going to lead them down a path of destruction. So God isn't jealous because he feels somehow unfulfilled He's jealous because he knows he's the only thing that can truly fulfill us. He's zealous, passionately, intensely with a love for us. So when he sees us in darkness, he wants to bring light. But he knows that some people are just resistant to that. All all the things that Isaiah is saying will happen. They'll, They'll be done. But the question still remains. So so all this is revealed in his idea, but here's the question. Will people see it? Will they accept it? Will they embrace what Isaiah is saying? Or will they continue to align with other nations? Will they continue to, to worship like pagans? Do they continue to chase after false things, gods of this world? Most of Isaiah's peers do that. They won't accept what God is offering. But that doesn't mean that God isn't going to keep trying. And it doesn't mean he's going to stop promising that one day they would see and they would have all that that Isaiah is talking about. There would, would be one day a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, a prince of peace. It'll be hundreds of years. But now what Isaiah was saying Christians all over the world are doing following Jesus. But again, not because we've learned to find life. Let's not make the, the historic mistake of believing that we are any better at finding light than the people Isaiah was prophesying to. We're not any better at it. We simply have been given even more grace by God because what the people who Isaiah was speaking to could only maybe imagine we can know has come for certain. God didn't give up on these people, even when they said, now we, we, we kind of want darkness. Said, no, 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 I'm going to keep a remnant into that remnant. I'm going to shine light. And so we come in here from all different places this morning. Some of us come in and, and we're walking in light and, and we're just, enjoying more and more of the brightness of God. But I'm also certain there are are people who feel in here 
like the darkness is stronger than ever. Folks, we've come together this morning because it's not. We've come here because God has brought us together by his zeal and he is showing grace and power. He is shining light right now. This isn't something that God promised to do when Jesus was born. So he said, well, there was this really powerful thing that happened a long time ago. Now you figure it out. It's something he promised to do forever. It started with the birth of Jesus. But he's promised to do it more and more forever and ever. It says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. I wonder this week, how is it possible to have good government and peace, not just without end? I kind of get that. It's just going to go on forever. But it says, of the increase of his government. So how is it possible for good government and peace to grow and grow and grow? Here's the answer I came up with. I have loved my children since I first knew that they would be mine. But I love them much more now than I did at first. Does that make sense? From the first moments I knew about them, my heart was full of love for them. I didn't think I could have any more love for my children when I found out that they were going to be mine or or on the day that they were born. But now, somehow, I have more love for them. And and what's happened is God has just continued to expand my heart for them. I have more and more and more love for my children. And I would tell you, on this day, as I hugged them this morning, I don't think I could love these little girls anymore. The only reason I would say I don't think that's true is because I felt that yesterday morning and the morning before that. So by faith... I believe that God can continue to expand my love for them. And I think that's how he can govern in righteousness and spread peace in ever-increasing measure. And I think he can do it without end. Because with God in Christ, there's no limit to how much his reign sets everything right and how deep his grace goes. I think he can do that more and more and more forever. And it's a zeal that does all that for us. He does it because he loves us so intensely. And so as you enter into this Advent season, longing and anticipation, reflection, pondering all that God has done, let's ask him in our hearts, Let's ask him among our families. Let's ask him in our church and let's ask him to make us light wherever we go to more and more walk in light and to see him as a mighty God, so gracious, loving beyond measure. He is indeed a wonderful counselor and everlasting father. He's the Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Father, would you be pleased? All that you do to keep us 
in light. We confess that we are prone to want to wander into darkness. Even when we've been in light, darkness seems such a strong pull. Keep us in light by your power. Keep us in light by your grace. And when we bless people in your name, amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.